Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute, where we seek to uh, pursue discipleship of the heart and mind. Uh, Today on uh, this recording, uh, oh, I should say, I'm your host, Randy Newman, and my conversation partner today is my friend Steve Garber. Uh, Steve has been Professor of Marketplace Theology, Director of the Program in Leadership Theology and Society at Regent College. Uh, He's written several books. He has uh, spoken all around the world. And he has uh, given a great deal of thought to this theme of vocation for the common good. We're going to talk today about his newest book, The Seamless Life. So, Steve, welcome to Questions That Matter. It's good to be with you again, Randy. We don't talk often enough, but it's always a gift to me when we actually see face-to-face for a while. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, this new book that you have out, The Seamless Life, uh, it almost feels to me like a a culmination of things you've been thinking and writing about for, for decades, really. And early on, you say that the whole question, I guess, or theme of this book is, uh, what does it mean to see seamlessly? S e a m l s l e s s l e. What? So, Steve, what does it mean to see seamlessly? Uh-huh. Well, we could talk for a long time, Andy. Obviously, um, there's an essay in the book that I've called "A Disposition to Dualism," and it's a reflection on a a morning in Birmingham, Alabama, a few years ago invited by some very good people, visionary people who love the city, and they were had arranged to have a morning breakfast, a prayer breakfast for the city of Birmingham. Um, Birmingham, of course, being, you know, famous for a letter from a Birmingham jail mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. other things along the way and the fractured, hurt, wounded history of American life. And this was at the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is was iconically, tragically known for the bombing deaths of little mm. girls going from Sunday school into the worship service on Sunday morning. And uh, I was asked to speak on vocation for the renewal of the city of Birmingham. And uh, so the essays, I won't go into the blow by blow, but uh, I reflected a little bit in the essay about John Newton for the reason that we'd sung the song Amazing Grace at the end of this breakfast. Mm. And uh, all of us around this large room and you know, black and white together and full of hope and longing for the city of Birmingham. And, but the irony to me, which, you know, the essay is about, was to think about Newton, um, whose song we were singing all together, uh, America's Song, as, you know, Steve Turner has, has called it, uh, mm. uh, was born of a man's life who, as we know, the, you know, the, the nice story in some ways is that he ran away from home as an adolescent and entered into the, you know, selling the seas and then finally into the slave trade, bringing slaves from Africa to the new world and coming a captain eventually and coming to faith. And it'd be nice to say that he wrote Amazing Grace and thanks be to God. You know, the harder story, which is what I've told in the essay, is that he came to repentant faith uh, on board a ship one day, opened a Bible and you know, somehow in the mercies of God, the amazing grace of God, he, you know, cried out and said, please forgive me my sin, O oh oh Lord. But he kept being a slave trade captain for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. he actually, you know, had Bible studied on the top deck of the slave ships for years. Mm-hmm. 
with his other officers, while the holds were full of slaves manacled and chained and mm. dying, you know, in the way to, you know, slavery, futures of slavery. He didn't see any relationship between the two, between his faith and his work, mm. uh, his convictions about God himself, sin and salvation, and the work of his life. It was uh, two, two different universes. And, you know, God is his God, and I'm only an observer, aware of my own clay-footedness. Um, so I don't disdain him. And that was part of what I was writing about. I don't disdain him for that. I, I know my own disposition to dualism. But the best history we have is it was about 30, 35 years later when he first acknowledged out loud in a letter that I was a part of something terrible and horrible years ago in my life. Hmm. Uh, and I repent. I'm grieved over my participation in it. Uh, I don't say that, you know, to say, well, you know, awful man that he was. It's simply to say, you know, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, we are disposed to carve up our lives, to, to compartmentalize, mm. you know, things that mm. matter most of all to us, that are really important to us, and to say, well, this, but then this, and that, and then this. And you and I live in Washington, D.C., you know, Randy, and, you know, it's known the world over for its glories and its shames. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> one of the shames, I would say, is that, you know, everyone on in the Congress proposes to be a Catholic, a Baptist, Episcopalian, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal, la 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 you know? But there's almost no visible relationship between any kind of profession of faith, Democrat, Republican, on either side of the, of the aisle, and how people think and vote and talk about the public life of America. It's very rare to find anybody who can make an articulate connection between you know, what they say, these are my deepest convictions about God and history, and how I think about you know, this issue or this question. Uh, and mm. uh, so, it again, it's simply that we are disposed to dualism. So seamlessly, to see seamlessly as to somehow by, by God's great grace to hold that together with more coherently, mm. more seamlessly. Um, that's very helpful for me to contrast it to compartmentalization. Yeah. Um, because you're right, we we do tend to put things in compartments and uh, not see, not just not see seams, but we, we see walls and, yeah. you know, watertight compartments. Um, I, I never thought of that about what you just said about uh, Washington, D.C., but you're right. It's, um, I love driving around this area, driving around the city and seeing the monuments. And I mean, I just love it. But it always feels like there's a there's an asterisk uh, on every scene that I look at. I mean, I I just I love the Jefferson Memorial. I, mm -hmm. I I can't get enough of looking at it. But every time I do look at it, I remember all of the problems Thomas Jefferson had, <laughs> and so it's like this wonderful uh, bu uh, building, and his statue is just magnificent. And yet, <laughs> so. Um, so your book is uh, well, not just these essays in this book, but I think all of your messages are trying to push us in that direction of seeing all of life under the hand of God. Mm -hmm. um, you you have a toward the end of your book, you talk about the word proximate. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about why that's such an important word for us as Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, just to contrast Jefferson with that other great memorial on the mall. Lincoln's, you know, mm -hmm. memorial. Um, I like to go there, take my friend, people, my visitors from out of town there at night when they come in from the, to the city. And I always want them to, I always say, please read the second inaugural address. Mm -hmm. They walk up this great, all those great stairs and they walk off to the right and then they take, 
the five minutes it takes to read through the address. And the second inaugural address, just to keep it historical here, he gave, you know, in the late winter of uh, the year he died. He died about, he was killed about six weeks later, actually. Mm. Uh, for mm. what? For the words that he said in that speech. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and what the speech is for me, Randy, you know, is remarkable. It's so unusual and so profound because he actually wrote the words himself. <laughs> you know, I've lived in the city a long time and I have had a lot of friends over the years who've been speech writers for so and so and so and so and so and so. And they might have five or they might have 15 speech writers, depending on how prominent they might see themselves to be. And, <laughs> you know, and you just think, so what was it about Lincoln, you know, that actually he was so thoughtful? Mm. So able, so articulate, able to actually to write his own, to have thoughts on the one hand, which is his own kind of note to note, um, to have thoughts that he could say, and he could say them with such power and eloquence that we're mm. still listening to it 175 to, you know, years later, whatever it is today. Um, and to think, so who are you, Abraham Lincoln? And I mean, when I think about seamlessness, I mean, there is in Lincoln's speech there, there's a remarkable uh, depth historically, politically, even theologically, mm. uh, wrestling with providence, with history, yes. with right and wrong in history, with justice and injustice, seeing the implication of these things on both sides of the partisan aisle, you know, um, and in a way which we just have a hard time even thinking who could even imagine doing that in our world today. Mm. Uh, so I would say for me, I mean, Proximate, you know, how does it relate to this? Well, I mean, as powerful as the words were, as eloquent as he was, he got killed for mm. saying them. Mm. So mm. all the all the right things didn't happen. All the good things didn't happen for Lincoln. You know, in some ways he gave his life for a vision for what America needed to be, could be, should be, ought to be. Mm. And yet, you know, he was killed for the very words he, he gave to history. So for me, proximate is this idea you know, that um, it's asking a question, um, would you be willing to give yourself to something that's honest and true and right and good, even if you don't get everything? Mm. Mm. Wow, that's, that's very challenging and also very helpful at the same time or encouraging of there, there are experiences we have or moments that we have that are uh, quite close to the way things ought to be and yeah. and really seem to be uh, you know shining that um, they, they never they never totally get there not in this life um, but if we can hang on to those moments and again your your word the word proximate is very helpful um, think about this about also you know our region of the world here but you know growing up in California I don't think I even knew there was a Atlantic Ocean or Chesapeake Bay, or I never thought about it because I was grew up in the Beach Boys era of California. That seemed to be the center of the universe. Um, <laughs> but now living here for over 35 years or so, I'm thinking, well, I know the Chesapeake Bay pretty well now, and I've been to the Atlantic Ocean several times, in fact. And we've gone off into the chest to Chincoteague, to Assateague mm. National Seashore, because we like mm -hmm. the seashore part of it, because you have to kind of, there's no, you know, fer Ferris wheels and cotton candy. It's just like, people have to like to be in a national seashore to go there. Mm. And, over the years, Randy, I've often walked along the, you know, the, the, the beach in the early morning with my wife. And I'm always looking for the perfect seashell, frankly. Mm. I just, there's so many, of course, and a certain kind of tide comes in. You just think, 
oh, that looks so beautiful down there. Mm-hmm. Six feet from my eyes to my feet. Randy, I have looked and looked and looked for years and years. When I pick up the seashell, it's never perfect. Huh. There's always a crack. <laughs> There's always a little Mars somewhere. And I think, I can't even find a perfect seashell, really. <laughs> My point of here on this is that, you know, um, people say, what are you saying proximately? If I say, well, think about your marriage. You know, I mean, I love to love my wife. Uh, uh, is our marriage perfect? Uh, I long for it to be better than it is. And I think it's healthy for most of the time. But perfect, and I wouldn't say that word, actually. Hmm. But is there honest happiness and true happiness and a real goodness you know, between, in our marriage together? I would say, thanks be to God, there is, actually. You know? So for me, the proximal idea runs across human life, actually, from the most personal you know, things of life to the most public things of life. If you use a smartphone or a voice assistant like Alexa or Siri, you, or if you've gone through airport security or you shopped online, <laughs> come on, who hasn't? That's all of us. Then whether you know it or not, you've already encountered artificial intelligence or AI. But I bet a whole lot of us don't really know what AI is or what are the pros, the cons, what are the ethical implications and what the future is going to look like in light of these developments. Well, we're delighted as the C.S. Lewis Institute to have our good friend, Dr. John Lennox, who is always brilliant and winsome. Uh, He's going to answer some of these questions and provide clear understanding of what AI is, where it's heading, and, and then some thoughts about how followers of Jesus can and should respond in the way our world is being shaped by and influenced by and changed by artificial intelligence. So we have a great event coming up on Friday, June 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S., where John Lennox is going to, uh, in a through a pre-recorded interview, answer a lot of these questions and we think it's going to be a great resource for you and we hope you can make it Um, it's free but you do need to register so please go online to our website cslewisinstitute.org slash artificial hyphen intelligence and uh, sign up for this event once again Friday June 10th 8pm with John Lennox thanks a good word. It is a good word. And uh, and again, for me, uh, it helps me see that word a little more clearly or fully in contrast with another word. So proximate versus perfect. That's exactly and, right. And uh, seamless versus compartmentalized. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and that, but, but, but proximate versus perfect is not, it's not this disdainful, well, you know, you, you know, you're never going to get perfection. No, it, it it's an acknowledgement that there is a perfection uh, right. in God, in heaven, in eternity, um, and no, we're not going to experience it in all of its fullness now. But but there is, 
uh, a perfect, a holy, a beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and so that just helps with the broken seashells. <laughs> I'm very disappointed, though, that you haven't seen any perfect ones because, you know, when you go into these seashell stores at the beaches that are more commercial than the ones you yeah. went to, um, they always have these bins filled and they all look perfect. It just seems to be that, are these real? Anyway, I'm sorry. That's, I'm going in a different direction. Uh, well, no, it's a good question. I mean, and it might be I've just been on the wrong beach in the wrong place. To go. <laughs> um, but uh, I have looked and looked for years and years. And sometimes I'm asked, you know, not because I'm a pastor, I'm a professor, but to give homilies for weddings. And I, a couple of times along the way have, have actually chosen to reflect on the seas, seashells on the seashore, you know, and just to say, well, you know, I hope for you. And I will give you the words from my deepest heart here today, hoping, hoping, hoping for you to have true love to, for each other for years and years to come. But I want to ask you, would you be willing to make these promises from, from your deepest heart to each other today? If you knew that by God's grace, in 25 years, you will have found proximate happiness together. Ah, True happiness, honest happiness, real happiness, touchable happiness, but it won't be perfect. Will you be able, willing to do that? I love it. I love it. Thank you. That is such good stuff. Um, well, I have this list of things I want to ask you about, and I can't quite think of a smooth transition from okay. um, the beauty of marriage to the reality of a hamburger. But you have a whole section in your book about a hamburger. And you say, sometimes heaven meets earth in a hamburger. <laughs> At least I think that's possible. And when we try, Working hard to figure out why food that is tasty and healthy at the same time matters. It becomes almost sacramental. Uh -huh. So first, I have to just, you know, apologize to all the vegetarians who are li listening. <laughs> a hamburger being sacramental. We'll have, we'll, we'll have a, a separate uh, podcast sometime about that. So tell me, how, how can a hamburger be sacramental? I love this. Uh -huh. That's a great question, Randy. Um, well, I don't know if it was now. 15 years ago, or maybe more than that, uh, um, Hans and April Hess, who moved to Washington, you know, worked on the Hill for a while, had this idea they scribbled out on the papers on their kitchen table at night for a year or so, got a, a loan from a bank and started Elevation Burger uh, on Lee Highway and in Falls Church. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I got to know Hans early in those days and weeks of this new store and, and, uh, I noticed there was, you know, an elevation burger and a, this kind of a burger and this kind of burger. And talking to Hans one day over lunch, I said, I found out that he was actually theologically trained and uh, had gone to Dallas Theological Seminary for four years and hmm. pretty serious about his life, wanted to become a missionary. And then he just couldn't figure out how to become a missionary after all and moved to Washington, D.C., thinking maybe I can try reboot my life and career in Capitol Hill. And, you know, but along the way, you know, he ate a... Uh, Competitor burger. Uh, we can call it Five Guys if we want to. Um, <laughs> and uh, he realized that it made him sick to his stomach. Um, oh. And the French fries were fried in such terrible oil, and the hamburger was smelled so good and so tasty in the one hand, but not healthy at all. Mm. You know. And he began to just think through: Would it be possible to make a healthier hamburger? Mm. And, uh, um, and he tried this and tried this and find a source here and another source over here and. Mm. I mean, I'm going to cut to the chase here, but as I got to know him, we, we began talking about, of all things, eschatological hamburgers. And, uh, <laughs> and I said to Hans, because he was theologically trained, I said, Hans, you know, that's what you're doing, aren't you, really? He says, I can't promise you 
because I don't know for exactly exact what will be on the Merry Supper of the Lamb table. It'll be a great, 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 great cosmic feast, of course. That'll be for sure. Um, and everything on the table from this side to this side, cosmically speaking, will be at the same time both healthy and tasty. Mm. There will not mm. be a trade-off. There will not be a donut end and an apple end. It'll be all somehow completely both at the same time, healthy and tasty. I said, Hans, you know, for you to do your darndest now in this now but not yet part of life, time of history, to make a healthy, tasty meal, well, you know, it's eschatological, isn't it? You know, it, it's a signpost of what is yet yet to come. And uh, I just know that intuitively, a lot of my theology, Randy, is maybe more intuitive than people might be surprised by. But I just realized, you know, since I'm no longer 15 and can eat five guys hamburgers at 1130 at night and go to sleep at night, you know, I would just be <laughs> sick all night long now if I tried to do that. Mm. Uh, I realized that somehow going in to have lunch with Hans and his elevation burgers and his French fries fried in olive oil, I didn't think about it afterwards. I didn't have to take three tums going back to work. I just, they did well. My stomach handled them well, actually. I thought, well, that's really interesting, Hans, you know, that my stomach actually thinks this is okay to put this kind of food in my uh-huh. stomach. Really. And uh, so sacramental, what is it? Why did I use that word? What is a sacrament? A sacrament fundamentally, and it's clearest and truest, is a place where heaven and earth touch each other. Mm. Mm. So what is it we pray when we take part in the Eucharist and communion? We say, well, may this water, you know, may this bread, you know, may may this somehow, this wine, you know, all this somehow, will the wine be somehow, depending on whether we're Protestants and Catholics or Orthodox, we have different readings of what all it means. It happens before us, I suppose. But we're praying that something would be present where heaven and earth actually mysteriously, mystically meet each other in this bread and this cup. Um, so, um, I was saying to Hans and what I wrote about in the essay was that, you know, when a hamburger and French fries are a window into heaven touching earth, <laughs> it's sacramental. Mm-hmm. And I think I've mentioned this on this podcast a number of times. So listeners may think this is a repeat, but I, I keep, when, as you're talking, I can't help but think about, uh, Acts 14, when Paul is uh, speaking to this crowd that just thought he did this miraculous healing because he was Zeus or Hermes, and they started bowing down and worshiping him, and he says, stop that. Um, and But then in his pre-evangelistic message to them, uh, not even pre-evangelistic, evangelistic, um, that God has not left himself without a witness. He has given... Uh-huh. And among the things that he says that are pointers, it's rain, crops, uh, food, and joy in your hearts. Huh. And this is to a, a pretty crazy pagan crowd, but he's saying, yeah. even, even you guys, you have yes. um, food and joy in your hearts, and those are pointers mm-hmm. to a perfect world, a greater world, another world. And I don't know. I I I just delighted that food can be part of that. It really can. It is. It's not just well. We need this in order to survive. Uh, we we do need it in order to survive. But isn't it just wonderful that it's also so delicious? <laughs> and if we had more time to talk, Randy, we could pursue this more fully. But I would just simply say to you and to your friends here, podcast that I would argue, and I think there's I think there's reason for it, that actually the longest question we have from beginning to end in the Bible is this one. What are you going to eat and why are you going to eat it? 
Oh, say more. Say more. Go ahead. Just think. I mean, isn't that Genesis 2 passage? Uh Those two trees, you know? And the question to Father Adam, Mother Eve is, so what are you going to eat? And Mm. why are you going to eat it, really? You know, and of course, the beginning of the great, great cosmic chaos and crisis, you know, we still live with all day long is, you know, answering the question wrong um, in Genesis 3. Um, Imagine the fact that if they ate this, it would mean this. That could never mean that, actually. Hmm. All the way, just slowly, slowly walking our way through, you know, the Passover celebration. Hmm. Um, hmm. About the Last Supper, as we call it. Um, I'm just going to go quickly here, but think about the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was just going to say, and where does it all culminate? In a feast, which we have is the first thing that happens in the new heavens and earth will be a supper together. (laughs) So, to me, there's quite a fascinating thread of redemptive history that actually follows this question of eating, of what we're going to eat and why we're going to eat it. Mm. So for me, Hans's best shot at creating a healthy, tasty meal for us was sacramental, eschatological. <laughs> now, um, uh, you, you, you said that a lot of your theology is, uh, what did you say? It was in- intuitive. In- Intuitive, right? So you 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 just threw out a phrase, and I got it. But I, I want to make sure that our listeners get a fuller grasp of it. You said that we're living in this now but not yet world. I, I don't want that phrase yeah. just to be a cliche. Say say a little more of what's. And again, I know we could talk for hours about yeah. it, but just yeah. for and particularly if people haven't heard it a lot. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, to use a, a high-priced word, but it is in the part of theology we call eschatology, uh, which is the, the study of what we call the last things, the eschaton. Um, but I would say, you know, again, whether we are, wherever we find ourselves lining up eschatologically speaking, you know, in the different schools and traditions and interpretations of the scriptures and, you know, Book of Daniel, Book of Revelation, especially, I suppose, I don't think there's a there's a debate really that I can see uh, over the reality of the now, but the not yet, um, and uh, you know whether we are premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial in our dispositions and commitments. I think we all agree that you know we have to somehow make sense of Christ has come to make everything be new. It, behold, all things are made new, and the creation groans. Mm-hmm. We do too. And so somehow the tension of those two together is the now, but the not yet. Mm-hmm. We believe that, yes, all things have been made new. Praise be to God. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, mm-hmm. the creation groans, and you and I do too all day long. Um, and so how do you hold them together? Well, the best theology we have uses language like, well, we live in the tension between the now and the not yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you a fisher of men? Uh, do you want to be a fisher of men? Do you do you struggle with this call that Jesus places on us to be fishers of men? Uh, discipling others is also a significant part of that whole enterprise, and it's a way to abide in Christ. It's a way for us to know Christ more fully, become more like Him, and participate in His work of building His kingdom. 
So as we disciple, we become co-workers with Jesus. As he helps us mature, he allows us to help him mature others and nurture them towards reproduction and expanding of his kingdom. And so we have many free small group resources on our website, uh, many different things to help you in this discipleship process, both to grow as a disciple and to disciple others. So please check out cslewisinstitute.org slash products. You know, I, I, I want to share with you and our listeners, I, um, I was reading your book at the same time that I was up in New York uh, visiting my mother, who's quite old, and uh, she was in the hospital because she had heart surgery. It was very, very serious. Um, okay. She came through it okay, but she's got a long recovery ahead of her. And so for five days, I was going up to the hospital and seeing her in this intensive care unit. And uh, it was very, very difficult. I mean, uh, I mean, certainly seeing my mother there, but being surrounded by death in a sense and surrounded by the ravages of the not yet. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it was so noisy. There's so many beepings and that just drives me crazy. Someone, I, I love silence and I love music. So I, I really have trouble with noise. And boy, is there a lot of noise in intensive care units and whatever. Yeah. And um, I, I was thinking about your your teaching in this book about seeing all of life seamlessly. And I found out that very close to the hospital was this pretty small art museum. Huh. And so one of the mornings before visiting hours began, I stopped at the art museum to walk around. And it was just so very helpful for me to think, okay, this, this, this is all part of the same world. Huh. These absolutely stunning, beautiful paintings and sculpture. And to take some time to, um, it's funny, I, I, I emailed my wife about it and she said, well, I'm really glad that you had some time to ingest that art. Huh. And I said, huh. ingest it. That's exactly the right word. I, I, huh. I, I was nourished by huh. seeing Right. Some really, really beautiful paintings as I then had to go back to difficulty. And so this seeing all of life seamlessly, th- this isn't just a philosophical concept. This is to help us find strength and even joy in the midst of some very, very difficult things right. in this world. Because that's the world I live in. I think about that all day long, Randy. Mm. Uh, and... Uh... One of the essays in the book I have reflected on the Pixar film Inside Out. Um, and if you know that story, you know, the little family moves from the Twin Cities to San Francisco and they have an eight-year-old little girl and, you know, she's embedded within a wonderful family and community and friends and school and Minneapolis. And, and then she moves out to this place. She knows no one and no one knows her. You know, mm-hmm. so beautiful it is, the Bay Area of California, and she is terribly, terribly lonely. And the back story is that there's this sort of, you know, big, you know, computer world, you know, with, you know, uh, lights and cameras and, you know, all these different emotions behind the story. There's, mm-hmm. you know, especially there's joy and sadness and the three or four others as well that are part of the story. And they are responding to what they see in the little girl's life. And joy is just so full of joy, of course. And she's sure that the little girl just needs more and more and more joy in her life. Mm-hmm. And sadness just keeps trying to bump in and say, well, I think I'm part of this too. And joy keeps pushing sadness out saying, no, she doesn't need you. She needs more of me. You know, and, uh, 
the end of the story basically is joy begins to realize slowly that in fact sadness is part of the story too mm. and for the little girl to actually to understand what's going on in her life she needs to be able to make sense of of, of the sadness that is hers uh, right now in her life not to deny it um, and i would say that that essay one of the most widely read essays that i've ever read written in my whole life andy um, just people responded to it all over the place. I, I quoted N.T. Wright in the essay, uh, this wonderful statement he made in a book on written for Lenten meditations years ago. But he says, the vocation of Jesus is to take into his heart the most remarkable joy and the most remarkable sorrow and to weave them into the pattern of his days. Uh, he says, when we imitate Christ, our imitation of Christ, taking up his life, his vocation, making it our own, we too will find that most remarkable joy and most remarkable sorrow. And, you know, when I realized years ago, I was never going to become a Buddhist in this life, you know, never going to deny that that, that distinction existed as Buddhism requires of us. I had to somehow account for real joy and real sorrow that was mine every day. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wright's theology to be so helpful to me. It was rich enough and deep enough and true enough to make sense of my life. And I found the Pixar story to be a playful but very profound way into understanding why both are true. Oh man, this is great! You are giving us a way of seeing your, your your these short essays in this book. They look in this direction. They look in this direction. They look at food. They look at um, business. They look at and uh, showing us the seamlessness of it all. Um, uh, I'm I'm really grateful for the way you're helping me push in those directions, and I certainly hope. Uh, that's helpful for our listeners. Any any last comments as we bring this to a close? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could talk again for hours, Randy, you and I, but um, maybe just to draw on one of the essays that I enjoyed writing quite a bit. Um, and uh, it's one, actually, a picture my wife took. Most of the, the essays are accompanied by photos that I mostly... Yeah, I did notice. I love that, yeah. I, I, I took them. Um, but one, my wife took of me with a with a, a lariat, a rope. Uh, you'd right. have to be not from probably suburban Washington or Metro. You have to be from someplace out there, you know, like the rest of America. You know, where they have cowboys and cows and ropes and things like that. <laughs> this is an essay written in southwestern Colorado, where I I was born, and where my spent my first summers of life. And uh, it's an essay reflecting upon my my grandfather's life. And uh, I've drawn on this Benedictine image of Ora e Labora and uh, of watching my grandfather every night in my summer years as a little boy, spending my weeks of my summer with my grandparents, asking all of us, inviting all of us to come onto our knees at night and pray uh, for things that he wanted to pray for, you know, as my grandfather. And, you know, I was eight, nine, and 10, and 12, and 14, and those years of my life. But I I watched that. I took part in that. But I also would go with my grandfather to the livestock auctions that were part of his life. He bought and sold cattle for the years of his life. Hmm. And uh, I knew that I didn't have Benedict, you know, or a labora to draw upon at that point. I was simply <laughs> watching my, grand, my granddad, you know, live a life. And uh, I remember one day being in this place where, in Cortez, Colorado, where he was buying cattle and and the auctioneer you know, was kind of moving from one kind of cow to the next kind of cow, cow. And he asked my grandfather, one of the buyers, Mr. Gilchrist, what are these cattle selling for this week in Colorado? 
Now, my grandfather was a math whiz, actually, and he could have, in a flash, you know, adjusted the price to his own benefit. But the auctioneer knew, that even though my grandfather was one of the buyers, that he wouldn't do that. He trusted my grandfather's character. But he also trusted my grandfather's competence, mm. knowing that of all the buyers that day, my grandfather would know the price throughout the whole state. And he would tell, tell the price truthfully. Um, and so watching my grandfather marked by, born of this commitment to both competence and, and character, mm. even as a 10-year-old boy, and knowing that for him, it was born out of some kind of relationship between his night by night kneeling, you know, praying to God of heaven and earth. Mm. You know, that for me, that was quite a formative picture, actually, of, of a good life, of a godly life. Mm. And so, you know, when I, the essay is about vocation, learning about vocation, I think I called it. That in my grandfather's life, I began to see something about what a vocation looks like, a life born in Benedictine terms, where praying and working are held seamlessly together. Aura A. Labora. Mmm, great. And, um, oh yes, I do want to keep talking, but I also want to bring uh -huh. this to a close. Um, uh, you've given us so much to, to hang on to, to cling to. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing several pairs. You have this pair of character and competence. There's seamlessness versus compartmentalization. There's proximate versus perfection. Uh, so I do recommend Steve's book. We'll also put uh, some links in the show notes to some essays that he's written. Uh, Steve writes uh, sometimes for us, but also for the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. Uh, love reading your stuff there. So um, thank you for being part of our uh, Questions That Matter. Uh, to our listeners, please check out our website and all of those many, many, many different uh, resources we have there. Uh, our prayer and our vocation, we believe, is to help you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind.